It's time for a more in-depth look at today's news. It's time to find out who's pulling the strings. It's time for the Behind the Curtain podcast with your host, author Jeff Reynolds. Hi, I'm author Jeff Reynolds, and this is episode 28 of the Behind the Curtain podcast. Before we begin, I want to remind you to check out my new website, www.jeffreyreynolds.net, and you spell that J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. This is where you can find all of my content from all the different platforms where my articles can be read. Also, I want to ask you a favor. When you go to jeffreyreynolds.net, please sign up for my newsletter. I won't spam you, and I'll send out a couple of emails a month tops. This allows me to keep you updated on all the cool new stuff I'm doing. I made it really easy, too. Just go to the website and click the link on the top that says subscribe to the newsletter. And if you like this podcast, please consider a paid sponsorship. You can help support this podcast with a small monthly donation. The more I can monetize the podcast, the more time I can spend on it, and the better and more consistent the content will be. Go to anchor.fm slash behind the curtain and click on the big old support button right at the top of the page. This podcast is a continuation of what I started in episode 27, a series of podcasts that are the most important I've ever done. I'm talking with a bunch of sources about the riots in our city streets, the insurrection that's taking place, and how widespread the violence could get in the lead up and aftermath of the upcoming election. My first interview this week is the conclusion of my talk with Michael Yan. In episode 27, we talked about why he decided to come to Portland for the two-month period before and after Election Day 2020. He's here to determine how close the United States is to insurrection, splitting apart, or even civil war. In the conclusion, we talk about his time in Europe in former Soviet bloc Marxist countries, his time talking to the Proud Boys and other right-wing groups to see if they're really white supremacists, and what he's learned so far about Antifa's plans to disrupt the election in Portland and nationally. Michael Yan has done extensive writing for many years on armed conflicts around the world and has published several books. You can follow his work at patreon.com slash Michael Yan, which is Y-O-N, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Michael Yon fan page, or on Twitter at twitter.com slash Michael subscore Yon. My second interview this week is with Sean Kennedy, a visiting fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute. Sean has extensively studied crime rates in comparison to criminal justice efforts and has lots of things to say about liberal appeasement of criminal activity. The catch and release policies for rioters have done a lot to aid and enhance the violence that we see in America's city's streets. Not surprisingly, Portland's district attorney, Soros-backed and Antifa-aligned Mike Schmidt, make for an interesting conversation. Sean's work can be found at mdpolicy.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the Behind the Curtain podcast wherever you listen to it, and please leave a positive rating. The more subscribers and the better the ratings, the higher Behind the Curtain will rank on podcast services like Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts, among many others. Stick around to the very end so you can hear the full version of I Am America, the theme song, by my buddy Brian Futch. Hey, did you know I wrote a book? It's called Behind the Curtain, Inside the Network of Progressive Billionaires and Their Campaign to Undermine Democracy. It's an examination of the dark money on the left that continues to fuel the worst of the swamp creatures. There's a real appetite out there for folks to learn about who's pulling the strings on the left and what their ultimate goals are. I've done several speaking engagements, and I'm looking for more. 
If you know of any conservative clubs, Republican groups, Tea Party or 912 clubs, or anyone else who would get something out of following the dark money on the left, please email me at jeff at jeffreyreynolds.net. Search for Behind the Curtain, Inside the Network of Progressive Billionaires and Their Campaign to Undermine Democracy in Stores, or online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Simon & Schuster. It's available in hardback, Kindle, or Nook. Check out whoownsthedems.com for more more information. Right. I lived in Europe for six years. I loved it, but uh, let's face it, they're not they're not our government. Uh, right. <laughs> but I'm, you know, I don't need their advice. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah well, now you got, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, North Korea, China and Russia on the, uh, and Pakistan on the human rights council at the UN. And <laughs> what a joke. Saudi Arabia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what it was. Like, yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like, it, it means nothing. You know? Right. Like the Nobel Prize no longer means anything. Right. Just the fact that uh, Trump got nominated three times within the space of a month and a half. Yeah. And <laughs> That's funny. But Susie, I hope he gets one. That's going to. Yeah, just, no, just unfortunately he didn't. But, uh, you uh, know, it, just the fact that he was. And they buried it. You oh, know, is it, it finished now? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the nominations are closed and they okay. chose somebody else. But, yeah. Oh, I lost track of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, but, you know. Civil War, the human terrain in the United States, it's so complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, for instance, um, you've heard of the Black Belt, maybe. The Black Belt, that's what they used to call it in the 1800s. Okay, okay. And that was the, a belt after the Civil War where a lot of blacks live in the South, right? Right, still so, in former slave territories. Yeah, and, and so yeah. you hear that one group talking about, what was it, not in fact group or whatever, uh, near Atlanta. And, you know, they're oh, talking okay. about, we were going to break off. We want, you know, our own state. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so this goes, this idea goes back to just after the Civil War. Well, a lot of things do because they're also, uh, there's a huge call for reparations right now. Right. And, and so there's reparations and resegregation. And really what, what ends up happening here, and I wanted to quote this to you because, uh, the, the stat I saw the other day is that they're, uh, right now, 20% of America is in the process of moving. Which 20%. is twenty percent, which is a staggering Look number. Me. Right? I just came back to America. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you're on assignment, but uh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's so we're self balkanizing and we're self segregating. We are. Now. We are. Yeah, and we're I not. Mean, we're not coming together. When we're going ask apart. Me where do I want to live in America? I want to live in a place that is safe. I feel safe around the people that are around me, which is going to tend. I've never been anti-Democrat until about six months ago. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. When they start, when the city started burning and I could clearly see that they're cheering it on. I'm like, look, I was, I'm from the South. I was raised by Democrats. Mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. fed by, I mean, they've treated me extremely well. Right. Yep. Yep. As you know, there's different species of Democrats, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, well, there's but, only one now, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But after, after seeing that, I'm, I, just, I, I, I can't believe that you're, you're cheering the burning. Of American cities. Well, and, and the other and thing that's trying to gaslight me and tell me it's not happening. Right. And <laughs> and then gaslight you by saying, OK, if it is happening, it's the right wing extremists that are doing it. Exactly. A bunch it's of like, crap. You know? OK, that yeah. might work on your little minions, but it's not going to work on those of us who can smell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, open your eyes. Bullshit, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, um, oh, I was going to the, the other thing that. Uh, it has been going on concurrently with all of the rioting is the COVID shutdowns right. and the, the panic porn that's being pushed and how so many people are laying down and believing the bull crap. Right. And 
I'll give you a perfect example of this where, you know, I've had this girl who uh, has cut my hair for over 15 years. She's become a, a family friend. She's been to the house. She's been to uh, birthday parties. Uh, she's a family friend and my entire family gets their haircut from right. her. And a couple of months ago, I went in for a haircut. I was wearing a mask. I was in a really crappy mood. I'd been going through an anxiety attack for you know a very long time. And I grumped about having to wear a mask. Right. I, I, I got cranky and I grumped about having to right. wear a mask. She finished the haircut and you know I, I complied. I, can, I kept the mask on like she asked, even though I said some snarky stuff and right. got mad. And we've, she finished the haircut. And four days later, she texts me and says... I can't believe you were so disrespectful to me the other day. I'm canceling all of your appointments and you're going to have to find somebody else. And, and I was like, Oh, well, I, uh, I guess our yeah. 15 year friendship is over. And she said, yeah. And, and you did that to the friendship by not respecting me. And mm-hmm. so, so now, I mean, it's, it's become such a stark contrast psychologically between these two camps that, you know, if, if you're not in the one, if you're not in the one tribe, right. you're in the other tribe and you are, uh, you know, people are just yeah. lining up as uh, uh, cowboys and Indians. Yeah. Yeah. Pandemic was interesting timing. Uh, now, uh, let <laughs> me say that, where that I, is interesting. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let me say where I come from on this. Uh, since I study war so much, there's a couple of other related matters that I studied that go along with it. Mm-hmm. And that's pandemic and famine. Mm-hmm. Because if you have a big war, you'll always have pandemic and famine. If you have a big famine, you'll have pandemic and war. Mm-hmm. It's like the devil's triangle. If you get a big one, you'll get the other two every time. Right. Because, so, well, it's like a three-legged stool, right? You chop one, one, everything falls over. And often a pandemic will lead to another pandemic. Right. Like, like AIDS leads to tuberculosis increase, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, or COVID leads to further COVID shutdowns when flu season starts. Again. Exactly. Yeah. So, in ways that are unpredictable, it always happens. You know, you roll the bowling ball, it hits some, it's hitting something. <laughs> you know, it's that's hit right. Something. That's right. It's, it's like the boulder in Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> yeah. It's going to hit something. We don't know what, how, yeah. we don't know how it's going to bounce, but it's <laughs> heading down that valley. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there have been, because of the initial COVID shutdowns, uh, you're already seeing shortages in the, in the grocery stores. I don't know. You haven't been back in the States enough. That's to why I said in January, in, yeah. Jan- in January, Okay. Last year when I was in Hong Kong, uh, I was saying during my live streams, I could live stream there without being killed. Yeah. Uh, although I did get some rubber bullet love sometimes. Oh, wow. uh, <laughs> and, and tear gas hundreds of times. Oh, but, wow. Uh, wow. But the, um, uh, that's why I have these great masks. <laughs> but the, um, uh, uh, but very often during breaks when there was no Molotovs or, or whatever being uh, thrown, I would say, you know, what's going on, for instance, with the swine flu in China. Mm-hmm. And this was pre this pandemic. Right. Because I do pay attention to pandemics. I've read more than 40 books just on pandemic. Yeah. Much yeah. less. I mean, so I've been reading about this for years. So on January 11th of this year, long before most people even knew this was happening, I masked up. Mm-hmm. So I, I went to mask on January 11th. By yeah. 12th, I was totally masked. And, and within a couple of weeks, I ordered 600 more masks for my friends in Hong Kong and Thailand. Because you knew there was going to be a shortage and a run on them, I, right? And I was telling people, yeah. it's clearly yeah. on my social media and my live stream still online now. And I, yeah. Was, yeah. I was saying, get masks now. And yeah. I was saying, 
buy food now. And oh, by the way, the Obama administration didn't stock up and and all of our masks come from China. And, you know, Trump has a bad relationship with China. So this this is a a disaster waiting to happen. Oh, that's why that's why uh, I already had masks. I have a big stockpile of masks. Mm. And and uh, and I had it long before any of this because I pay attention to these things. And uh, but Steve Bannon contacted me in, in January and he's like, what do you think about the pandemic? Do you think it's real? Mm. I said, yes, I think it's very real. Yeah. And I was on his like second or third show, I think, pandemic, mm. uh, because I was saying in January, as was he, we don't know where this goes. We don't know anything about it. We right. still don't know much about it. Uh, but Except so, that it was created in a lab. Oh, we, we, yeah, that much is. <laughs> and at. At a bare minimum, it was weaponized post facto. At bare minimum. Right. Uh, yeah. By allowing 50,000 Chinese nationals to fly right. to the United States. At a bare minimum. Yep. Yep. And so that's why back in January, I was saying over and over and over, stock up on food, get medicines that you need, be prepared for, I got I got solar put on my home in Thailand. Oh, wow. I got, you know, and had extra water reservoir put in mm. uh, just in case, because we didn't know which way it was going to go. And, and that's we, a good idea yeah. anyway, right? Just yeah. to, to be yeah. prepared for any disaster. I mean, I already had good food stockpiles, yeah. but I think that any this is a problem. You can go into these stores. I've been, I've been going to these amazing stores in America or mm. staggering stores. That have, <laughs> and, and it looks like there's so much food, but a lot of us just in time. And well, and but you're seeing shortages. You're see, seeing empty shelves where they used to be full. You're seeing like uh, 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 Fred Meyer is one right. of the uh, grocery stores right down the street here. And uh, when I would go to Fred Meyer in uh, April, May, June, when the toilet paper shortage was going on, in order to keep the illusion of uh, full store, uh, full shelves, they were putting firewood in where the the toilet paper was. That's what they did in old uh, communist countries. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I've written about that at times because I lived in. I spent a lot of time with communists back. When in a long time ago, yeah. and, uh, and 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 <laughs> last thing you want to be is communist. <laughs> I, I, I was, you know, when I was raised in Florida, I was taught that all the time. Sure, and I thought that they were exaggerating. Mm-hmm. And then I was over in East Germany and Czechoslovakia and Romania and Poland. And then I lived in Poland during transition for two years. Oh wow! And uh, I tell you what, they understated how bad it was. Really, it was terrible. Yeah, and it was just like you said on the food stocks of these tiny stores and these. Uh, push carts that would be smaller than the, the, the hand things that they give you. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it would be one type of bean, mm-hmm. one deep, yeah. right? And as soon as you pull it off the shelf, because there'll be a lady at the end of every aisle watching yeah. every aisle so you don't steal anything. As soon as you take it off, <laughs> put it in your little buggy yeah. and stand in line for two hours or whatever, she'll run back and put another bean can there. Oh, my goodness. And you don't have like 50 types of beans to choose from <laughs> like America. Well, right? you know, Bernie Sanders says, oh, why do we need this kind of variety? Uh, you know, why do we need so much deodorant? He's poison. Yeah, he's yeah. toxic. But he's created such a movement now. Yeah. That's that's what's really frightening, right? But it's right? democratic socialism. <laughs> I, see all, I, see, I see all these Americans come over and I'll talk with them in Thailand or Hong Kong or whatever. Yeah. And the young ones will go, but it's they always stress, it's democratic socialism. Mm-hmm. I'm like, in other words, it's common. Listen, why don't you just stop talking about it and go to some of these places and see for your own eyes? Yeah, you can vote over there and, yeah. and then you can't buy toilet paper. Go, go see it. <laughs> like, for instance, earlier this year on my live streams, I was saying, count your coins out now and cash them in. And people are like, why? And they're, you're saying all these crazy things like stock up on, on have the ability to filter water, stock yeah. up on. And people are like, and I was like, you know. Get foods like I don't know rice, whatever makes you happy, and, and the people are like I don't eat rice. I'm like, okay, here's the deal: once China has a shortage, 
they're going to buy up all the food on the market. That's exactly what's happening. And then they're going to yep. buy up the food that you normally eat. Right. They're making huge purchases. And, and there's a there's a prepping uh, uh, podcast that I listen to, and I've been a guest on several times. It's called Prepping 2.0 with Shelby Gallagher and Glenn Tate. Right. Um, and they're awesome. Uh, Shelby's a personal friend of mine from way back. And um, they, they had a, a CEO of a, a food company on talking about that exact effect. And one of the reasons that there are shortages now is that uh, China is buying up all this food because they, they are short. They don't have the stockpile. Right. Russia's buying it up. Japan's buying it up. And so now all Malaysia, of our food... Indonesia, yep. Thailand, yeah. right? Yeah. They're all... I'm, I'm, I watch this... That's, I, I've been saying since January, stock up. Yep. And if you think... Yep. If you even think you don't have enough, then you don't. Right. I mean, seriously. Right. And, and if you think you have enough, buy more. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it, it'll last for a long time. The prices are going to go up. Right. And people say, oh, Inflation you're hoarding. Inflation is inevitable yeah. at this point, And people right? say, oh, you're hoarding. I'm like, no, you're not hoarding now. Right, right. now, the stock... I'm participating the, in the capitalist society while I still can. Yeah, and it's still... And it, <laughs> That's now, my human right. <laughs> now's the time to do it. This is our resilience, right? Because yeah, the supply yeah. lines are still wide open right now. No, they're not though. They're they're, they're but, fracturing, yeah. right? But they're not they're yeah. not totally dead. And right. that's that's the problem with China is they're not able. We we're not able to import stuff. I'll give you another example. My my daughter stepped on my uh, uh, wife's laptop and broke the screen, and so we had to go laptop shopping a couple of months ago. And we go to this big electronics store down uh, south of Portland that's always just stacked to the gills with electronics. It's sensory overload, and it's you know you can't even hear yourself think. There's so much right. electronics there we go in to buy this laptop and there's nothing it's empty empty wow. and and eerie eerily quiet and empty and no people in it and so finally i, I after a few minutes i asked one of the clerks are you guys uh, uh getting ready to close are you liquidating or are, are you going out of business and he says no we just can't get supplies in we used to get multiple trucks a day now it's every week and a half that we get a truck full of electronics and it's because we can't get supplied from china all of our electronics are made in china same thing with pharmaceuticals by the way if that dam breaks that's right yeah the the three rivers dam right uh the three gorges three i've been, gorges war I've been yeah. warning about that for long before these rains this year yeah yep. that dam and look and there's a excellent book uh China RX yeah. uh, on, on, you know, how, how, how reliant we are on our pharmaceuticals that can, if the 95% breaks, of them come from there, imagine how many Americans will die if we just can't. And China threatened us this year yeah. to cut off our pharmaceuticals. Right. And oh, by the way, upstream from the Three Gorges Dam is their uh, agricultural belt and, right. and, and all of that it's flooding. Yeah, that's right. So, and then, you know, we had in Iowa, we had that uh, supercell storm. Derecho. That, yeah, the derecho. That's right. The inland hurricane mm -hmm. that wiped out the, you know, it, they thought it was going to be 20% of our uh, corn crop. I guess it turned out to be seven or eight percent, but right. that's still a big impact. Especially when there's so many other things going on. And again, right? Again, because 2020 is insane. They're, <laughs> they're just they're just going to rape the seven seas of the fish, right? Yeah. And these are the sorts of things that lead to naval battles and right. that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, this is why I said famine, pandemic, war. These are the three musketeers. You will not find one without the other two. Well, but not, they're not a big one. Anyway. But they're all starting to happen at the same time. It's not like one caused the other two. It's like they're all converging. It, it becomes this mix that's inseparable spaghetti and meatballs. What came first? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But they are. And when you see pandemics, 
you'll see it, none of these pandemics are much like I've read, like I said, over 40 books and I've read since I was a kid on pandemic and because I've, I've always been deep into science since I was a little kid. Yeah, me too. Especially yeah. physics. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, one thing about pandemic that you notice is, first of all, they're all like the same again. There's yeah. always a Fauci. There's always, a, <laughs> there's always a, like, for instance, um, you know, what causes cholera? And people are like, it's the miasma, you know, it's the smelly air and all mm -hmm. this. And one guy's like, it's the water, you know, John's the, he's like, the water, you know, it's like, <laughs> that's crazy talk. You're a quack, you <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. or yellow fever with the mosquitoes. You yeah. know, of course, yeah. yellow fever's got two main strains right one is just like gives, gives you almost like a cold and the other has 70 percent mortality right? right right and so uh we're seeing that with covid by the way where you know a weaker strain has come out and that's why the the death rate is starting to go yeah down. it was yeah. the same with polio and yeah, whatnot yeah. and and I've, I've read books on all these different pandemics and and the funny thing is is they're it's like the hero with a thousand faces have you ever read that book no Joseph huh. campbell mm -hmm. anyways I call it the pandemic with a thousand faces. In other words, they're all like the same. There, there's going to be a Fauci here. There's going to be there's going to be people that leave town. There's going to be fights that come of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's going to be people that uh, 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 tribes are going to fracture over it, like I described every time. Yeah, yeah. every time. Yeah. I mean, we got the Louis. You know, the United States. We we typically when we we look at our history, we look at the Boston Tea Party. We look at all these things, but in reality, a lot of things that. A lot of what formed our country are pandemics hmm. and epidemics, right? It was, but but you'll you'll see, for instance, when Grant's going to Mexico and whatnot, he's like, you know, we're riding over to so and so, and then the yellow yeah. fever we had to divert, yeah. and then we came over here and we had the cholera, we had to go to the beach, and then we, you know, and you know here, and then came the smallpox, and and so, but there'd just be like one sentence. But if you've read much on the pandemics, you're like, that was a whole thing. Yeah, like yeah. we got the Louisiana Purchase. The reason we got that great deal was because of yellow fever, right? Why do you say that? Oh, because the French were like, couldn't take it anymore. Oh, <laughs> and, and that's the reason why, that's the reason why, um, uh, they needed the money for, and, but also, uh, that's the reason why we went from Irish uh, indentured service servants over to black slaves because the Irish were getting smoked by yellow fever. Oh, right? oh and so, but the blacks were not getting it in Africa. So I see, we're bringing I see. more. And that's why a lot of people were blaming, blaming backs, uh, blacks in the 1700s. They're like, it's the blacks bringing it. Oh, actually, okay. it was the opposite. They were bringing them as slaves because they were more resilient to it. Because they had adapted to the, the presence of it. Yeah. Foreigners always get blamed. For instance, yeah, the yeah. 1916 polio outbreak in New York. Who did they blame? Jews, yep. Italians, yep. and Irish. Yep. And Jews always get blamed. Every single <laughs> For time. everything, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. for sure. And, and it's like every pandemic, you're like, okay, yeah. here, okay, here, and here comes they blame the Jews, right? I'm not it's even, a conspiracy. I'm, I'm yeah, not yeah. even Jewish, but I know it's coming. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. you go right now with the Orthodox Jews up there. I'm that's like, right, yeah. there it goes again. Yep, yeah, no, they're, they're, that's exactly. Cuomo and de Blasio are, are targeting the Jews in New York City. I'm like, this is like right out of Monty Python. <laughs> it's, a, it's a burning ball of gas. <laughs> <laughs> That's hysterical. So anyway, so, um, all right. What are you doing tonight? What are you doing through the election? How bad do you think it gets? Uh, that's the magic question. Um, how bad will it get? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm despite going out over the line a lot of time, a lot of times and prognosticating, I'm actually very cautious before I do it. Mm -hmm. So let me develop more information first before I, but obviously, in the back of my mind, I sense it could get quite bad or I would not have come home. Right. The, 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 this, th the threads of our society are fraying. Yeah. If I thought this were just another passing storm, I would have stayed 
I, I would be in Taiwan right now, mm -hmm. actually. My office is in Thailand, but I would literally be in Taiwan. Because that's be, where it's popping off right now, right? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah. and I got kicked out of Hong Kong this year. And, but, but so, but, you know, I'm an American in my core. You know, my mother's side came in 1609. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And my father's side 100 years later. But so, I mean, we're, this is my country. And if we start to go to war, I've got to, I've got to come back and help yeah. and, and shed light based on my experience in so many conflicts about what I actually think is going on. Yeah. And sound the alarm. And, and yeah. yeah, I think so, now this time people will listen to me more because I now have a long track record. And well, and, and more people are saying it. I, there, there was a survey at the end of September that said 60, the, the guy that ran the survey said it was the most disturbing and troubling survey he had ever run. And it's 61% of Americans believe we're on the edge of a civil war. And like I said yeah. earlier, at some point, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. And see, exactly. And now one thing that's very important as well, uh, talking with a friend recently, he's like, ah, you're crazy talking about civil war. I know you were right here and that, you know, but yeah. this is just not, but it's like, America. It doesn't happen. I, yeah. I'm like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, you're, I'm like, you're in the lacuna, yeah. right? I call it lacuna matata. You know, it's like a joke, you know? So yeah, you're one of the rare people that'll get that. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, you, you believe you're in your happy space. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's where I would prefer to be as well. But that's not where we, we have to be on the edge and try to figure out if there's something bad going to happen. And one of the things about, for instance, in Iraq, let's use Iraq as an example. Mm. Now, when I was saying Iraq was in civil war, a lot of people were like, no, it's not because look here, 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 here. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, those we got places, all those things established and, and everybody's and I, peaceful. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was like, yeah, those places are not in civil war. Uh, they're clearly not. Uh, but these other places clearly are, and they're related to the, not to go into the details because it would be too much, but, but the bottom line is, let's say your body is completely healthy, but you got that little brain tumor, mm -hmm. right? And so it's like, yeah, it's just one little part of the brain. Yeah, it's a yeah. tumor, dude. And, <laughs> it's, and, it, I only have cancer in part of my body. <laughs> exactly. And so like whether, like Afghanistan, most of Afghanistan, I spent two years in Afghanistan yeah. and two years in Iraq, right? So four years between just those two mm -hmm. and then many others. Like in Thailand, when there's serious fighting, which I've been there twice when they overthrew the government, I was in the middle of the fighting both times. Wow. I literally got shot, but it was just a ricochet. Holy and uh, there was a lot of wounded, a lot of killed and overthrew the government, right? Twice. Wow. And, well, I was physically in the middle of it. Now, that said, I have an office in Thailand. I can go all over Thailand and most of Thailand is very peaceful. Mm -hmm. So even during the serious fighting with RPGs and grenades and automatic weapons fire, 98% of the country was completely free and open for vacation. And you know what? <laughs> uh, the United States in the first civil war was, I mean, mostly were fighting. Right. Yeah. You, you still right. have people operating their farms and factories and whatever else. And fighting never visited most of the places and most of the from, cities. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, uh, right. Uh, especially right. in the Northeast. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and likewise this time, uh, whether it was, whether, whether, wherever that is, uh, uh, little parts that go wrong can be that brain tumor, right? right you right. can see your entire government change right before your eyes, and it never touched your. Well, town. We already have. I mean, it, just this year with the response to COVID and the and the draconian lockdowns and the um, you know the, the rioting in the streets and all of this stuff. I mean, it 
think back to 2019, and it's it's nothing like what it was before. Yeah, let me let me talk again about masks. By the way, I masked up on January 11th and 12th, and, and but I, so I was way back in January and February. I was saying we need to lock down America right now mm-hmm. until we figure out how serious this thing is. Yep. But as soon as we started to realize, we still don't know. But I was also one of the first that said, okay, we just have to accept our casualties mm-hmm. and open up because it's not yellow fever type mortality. It's not going to wipe out the United States. Right. But uh, the, but and the, we the know who it targets and we have never in human history uh, quarantined healthy people. Back in February or so, I was saying, get all your loved ones out of uh, nursing homes. Yeah. I said it many times on my live streams. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and uh, because I was paying attention to it constantly because I know how serious pandemics can get if if this had been like yellow fever, our country would be dead now. Yeah. It yeah. would literally be dead. Our reaction to it was so terrible. We didn't have any PPE and strategic reserve. Mm-hmm. Who mm-hmm. would have thunk, right? Yeah. Well, and thanks, I, Obama. I, I, and I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I got a lot of vaccines last year to go back to India, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, and then Hong Kong kicked off, so I went to Hong Kong. So I got my arms filled with drugs <laughs> to go back to India. Yeah. And, uh, and then I went to Hong Kong. And, and I got another vaccine this year. But I'll tell you one thing. The COVID vaccine, there is no way I'm going to be the first to get that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If, yeah. After 100 million yeah. people get it first, I'll be like, you guys go ahead. Because I don't, right. I don't believe CDC anymore. I don't believe my trust is totally shattered this year. Well, yeah, the, uh, our institutions are deliberately lying to us in so many different ways. The the FBI with the uh, uh, um, Mueller probe and with uh, right. Hillary Clinton and, and Hunter Biden and all of that stuff, all the stuff that came out today in the New York Post with the emails with Hunter Biden. The FBI had all that stuff and, and they, they lied their way through the whole thing. Uh, you look at the CDC, you look at the WHO, they're, they're you know, all of these uh, 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 government officials are lying to us. And, you know, this is my conspiracy theory, but I, I think that a lot of this is sort of a um, dry run for uh, declaring an emergency over climate change. It could happen. I, I don't believe that's conspiracy theory. I mean, it sounds loony now, yeah. but then everything that's happening now sounded loony six months ago. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when I was saying Iraq was in civil war in 2000, in January, 2005, that sounded loony. It mm-hmm. was not. And people were gaslighting me like crazy. Like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. And yeah. I'm like, maybe not. Uh, but it turned out to be true. Right. Yeah. And so, but a lot of that comes from, you got to go see it for yourself and you got to be able to tune out the noise because Right. 98% probably of what's coming is noise. And you're looking for that signal. Where's the pulse here of what's really going on? Right. And, 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 and if the bones are there, then, yeah, and the blueprint is there, then it's, it's, you know, yeah, you're, we're closer than anybody thinks. Uh, it could go very bad, especially if but one thing that's concerned me since at least the early 90s is if our, and other people long before we were born were saying the same, but if our economy collapses, that's where we could get into a civil war situation Mm -hmm. because the even, you know, I've been to 75 countries, right? Mm. 74 plus the United States, but actually I divide the world into two countries, India and everything else. So (laughs) why do you say that? Oh, you just got to go to India. I'll I'll take you sometime. (laughs) All right. Sounds good. Uh, In fact, like I said, I was going to go back last year. That's why I was getting all these vaccines. Yeah. yeah. But uh, when when I go to India, I'm always asking people, how do you make this work? Because if there's any country that should fall apart, it's India. And somehow they get it. They they are holding it together with bailing wire and 
and duct tape. And maybe the, because there's so much chaos, it's spread across the entire country and it doesn't it is concentrate. Utter chaos. They got 17 <laughs> languages written on their money, you know? Yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. But English is their de facto, is their, is their, is their main language, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so I'm, I learn a lot more about America by not being in America. Yeah. And, uh, and for people that travel a lot, I say that to them, you know, it seems to be, let's say the, the magic mark is about five countries. Mm. After you've been to say five different countries that are very, say Japan, say Germany, say somewhere in Asia, you know, Mexico, then you'll, you'll look at America very differently. Yeah. For starters, this is an incredible country. Absolutely. It's an unbelievably great country. And I mean, I've got a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde thing going on here. One is I want to have a strong government. Mm. And two is I don't trust them. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, how can you reconcile these yeah, things? Yeah. Well, we but, uh, strong, a strong government would be trustworthy and would also hold our institutions together so right. that we aren't teetering towards something catastrophic. Right. We, they need to be. Let's use the EPA as an example. Oh, my goodness. Uh, EPA is... They're in my book. <laughs> oh, Lord. I mean, you know, I was in business before I went into writing. And, yeah. uh, very small business, but I had to deal with them. And, and so I started to become cognizant of their presence. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I realized is that now traveling and living overseas a lot, say India or China, you... I mean, when I leave here, live in the United States... EPA drive you crazy, right? Mm. And then you go over to a place like that, you're like, okay, we need some EPA. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 sure, sure. sure. We, yeah. We, we need it defanged a bit, but I don't want to live like India. Yeah. I don't want to live like China. It's pathetic. It's mm -hmm. sickening. That's why I was getting, you know, vaccines before going back because to India. Because it's a disease filth written. It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. I can't even describe it. I'll describe it and you'll be like, he's exaggerating. <laughs> and then you'll show up over there and you'll be like, I can't believe it. It's worse than any words that you could have picked. Right. You know? You know? And, well, uh, it's, it's still funny uh, that uh, Trump called them shithole countries. <laughs> and I'm like... I, Okay, I live in Thailand. Thailand is not a shit. Oh, I love Thailand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love Thailand, and you should come visit. I will. Uh, yeah. But uh, but a lot of the countries are fit into that category. Mm -hmm. and, and and even Poland, when it was still communist, that yeah. was a shithole country. Yeah. But yeah. I was among the Pol. I lived in Poland two years, right? Mm. Because when I was a Green Beret, we were targeted to Poland. Oh, really? To, to parachute in and fight Soviets, and then after I got out of the army, not so coincidentally, I lived in Poland, right? Yeah, yeah. And so. Um, but I, it was a shithole country at that time. But but I believed in the Polish people. Yeah. I was like, you know what? They've been living under this yoke of communism, and it saps your energy. It just becomes, well, it makes it, everybody into work. And before that, it was the Nazis that invaded. And so it was I mean, Nazis they, and yeah, communists, right? Yeah. yeah. They, so they they got their spirit destroyed. Oh, they oh in, in in all the communist countries because communism like forgets human nature that we'll work harder if we can, if we can benefit from our labors. Right. 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 And, and they're always like, why, what difference does it make if I work harder? I need some more vodka. Right. You know, like <laughs> seriously, like I yeah. would go to business meetings. Well, like, and that's, that's what the COVID shutdowns have done to a large swath of Americans. Oh yeah. So they'll become slothingly. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, but Poland, I could see that spirit in them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, they can make it. They have to be set free. Right. Polish, I'm not Polish, but I, I, I began to really respect Polish people. Mm -hmm. And because they are really stubborn. 
which can be a feature <laughs> of their trade. Yeah, <laughs> a feature or a bug, right? <laughs> yeah, it depends on what you're it doing. Makes for some good jokes. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, but that I was like, they're going to make it. I think no. that's why I started the business there, and they have. So Poland has done among the the eastern countries, I think probably the best. Yeah, yeah. and you could sense that back then, and. And that was why I set up shop there. Okay. Uh, but that was after several years of studying Poland, going to a Polish language school and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So how many languages do you speak? Really just German. Okay. All right. But you, you can understand a few bits and pieces. Yeah, I went to DLI for German, Defense okay. Language Institute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I went to a command language program, which is like a shorter language program, two, okay. twice for Polish. But Polish, the thing is, is when I lived in Poland, I was almost always speaking German or English. Oh, okay. Uh, because almost everybody... Uh, was speaking one of those languages. Gotcha. When I'm at the dinner table in Thailand, we're often speaking three languages. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll speak English and I speak German to one of my nieces. She's Thai, but I, she speaks German fluently. Oh, wow. So we actually speak German <laughs> together. Wow. And then the rest are speaking Thai and I'll speak English with my wife. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So it's like the UN table. Yeah, yeah. People, people are like, you're xenophobic because you want to build the wall on the southern border. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like listen, Rambo, I spent more than half my life I, in other I, I'm countries. surrounded by xenos. I, I am the, I you're am xenophilic. The xeno. I, I'm, I'm the xeno, and I'm telling you, we need to build the wall. But, you know, as I've said many times, though, I would take 100,000 Hong Kongers tomorrow. Yeah. You know, oh, without question. The when, they were out there, when they were out there uh, singing the American an uh, National Anthem, them and uh, talking about the Second Amendment and waving the American flag. Come on, man. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I was with them. Yeah. I, I, I mean, and they're super educated, very family oriented, right. very peaceful. They're only fighting because they have to. And they're not really good at fighting, actually, but they are courageous. Yeah. They got good, great courage. Yeah. They can't throw a Molotov worth of <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you were telling me that the you other take day. for granted that you grew up throwing stuff like baseball. <laughs> they, they grew up playing like soccer and stuff. Right. Man, they so they don't to, use their hands, right? They don't know how to throw anything. <laughs> so it's like, oh, no, oh, no, they got a brick. Run away. Because you know, it's, like, it's going to be like a golf slice, you know. And so they hit each other all the time. But I, I love the Hong Kongers, man. They're super smart, very family oriented, yeah. uh, very, uh, they work hard. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But they're under the yoke of the communism. Well, and, and we've been complacent in America for decades that we just take our freedom for granted. Yeah. And, and that's really the bottom line. And that's the weakness that allows all of that other crap to creep in. They're trying to do a soft call. I just did an interview this morning with Gordon Chang. And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah I've talked John to Gordon Bachelor. before. Yeah, he's a great yeah. guy. We do it weekly, actually. Yeah. And so um, I do a weekly interview with Gordon Chang and John Batchelor on the John Batchelor show. Mm -hmm. And we we're talking about Hong Kong again today. And they're doing a soft – mainland China is doing a soft genocide on Hong Kong. For instance, they're trying to change – Unlike the hard uh, genocide they're doing on the Uyghurs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and yeah. kind of medium on Tibetans or well, hard – before, but now, yeah, it's yeah. Still, I mean, it, and, there's not much yeah. left of Tibet, so exactly. I've been there, and it was, yeah, and I could, anyway. But the um, uh, but on the Hong Kongers, they're trying to ch not try. They're successfully changing the history curriculum in the schools. Mm -hmm. They're they're changing. Dude, it. Boy, that sounds familiar. Oh yeah, that's why I've written <laughs> three books about this yeah. in Japan. Yeah. But they also, uh, yeah, I mean, they're also they they want to to knock down Cantonese language. Mm. They want the students to study Mandarin. And now she was just saying in the last week, he wants Hong Konger students to come over to the mainland to study. Meanwhile, he's putting mainlanders over in Hong Kong. Sure. So he's doing Same the same thing they did to Tibet. 
Right. They're yeah. just growing the tree around the hole, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Until it's it's absorbed. Yeah. And, that, and that's what they want to do when I go to China and I talk with them about Taiwan. Most mm -hmm. of them, they don't want to fight. They want to do it the way that they're doing because they know it's actually less expensive to just grow around them. Like mm -hmm. they're trying to do in the United States, get people in all of our organizations, get people on their Right, because yeah, if, Hollywood you, on if you pull in Iraq and invade Kuwait, uh, like China would invade Taiwan, right. then um, you've got a world uh, response to that. That's Whereas right. uh, nobody's going to notice if they do it the slow, methodical way. Yeah, they won't. They'll just, it'll just happen. Yeah. It'll be like the kudzu growing over your home. Right. Yep. Until it's all gone. That's right. Okay, so let's uh, let's wrap it up here. But um, uh, I, I mean, we could talk all night. I, yeah, we could. <laughs> Which topic we yeah. could expand on any one of them? Seriously, man, it. It, 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 it's it's a dangerous world out there, and people really need to be paying attention to this stuff. So let's let's wrap it up by saying, okay, you're going to go out to Portland tonight uh, and check out the riots. And what do you expect tonight? What do you expect through election day? And I mean, you know, I know there's been a lot of talk about after the election and uh, riots and, and, and insurrection and everything else. There's a lot of stuff that they, they've actually told us they're going to do. Right. So what what's it look like tonight and what's the medium term future? I, I was out at one Antifa BLM riot over here in front of the courthouse recently, and they were out there. I was making video of this. They didn't attack me or anything because they didn't have any idea who I am, I guess. Yeah. And they were they were calling explicitly for white genocide mm -hmm. they were explicitly saying they're going to do mass arson in those words right well they already did they already did now for sure <laughs> uh, i i have law enforcement uh sources by the way on this uh tell me if you can confirm this or not but uh they know it was antifa setting fires all up and down i-5 after right. labor day weekend right uh I think that's a done deal. I mean, it's on video. Yeah, you know well, I mean? sure. Like, I mean, you know, we, we, right. we, had, we had people out there with AR-15s and propane bottles in the middle of dry fields right. uh, shooting them. So, yeah. Right, uh, yeah. So, I mean... It, but but they, they still, the FBI is even putting out statements, even still uh, uh, denouncing it as a conspiracy theory that Antifa was starting all the far, forest fires. It's clearly, it's clearly not. You know, it's, I mean, the, look at the fires. They were everywhere. And they were, it was just clearly in somewhere on video. And I, were they all, you know, from uh, Antifa or BLM? I have no way of knowing that. Nobody has any way of knowing well, that. Well, we know but one that wasn't, were. right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the one up the Sandy M Canyon right. in, uh, in Marion County had been burning. It was about 150 acres that had been burning for a few weeks. The wind event happened and it exploded. Right. So that one we know was not set intentionally. We were pretty sure anyway. Right. Um, but the rest of them, you know, I mean, it, it, they follow a very clear pattern. Plus, they've been saying they're going to do it. So, right. I mean, that doesn't mean they did it, but we know that you have announced the intention. It, you have the means and the method the, and the, the motivation. That Bernie Sanders uh, staffer who got caught on camera by James O'Keefe said, if uh, Sanders isn't nominated, we're going to burn Milwaukee down. I mean, this is they're telling us they're going to do it. That's just straight up saying. Yeah. And then as soon as they do it and we see them throwing the Molotovs and whatever, they're like, you're that's not true. You didn't see that. These are not the droids you're looking for. You know, they're yeah. gaslighting. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? <laughs> yeah. At, at some point, at some point, I've shut them out. Yeah. I no longer, I, I'm, I'm now, I'm now, I'm just, I'm no longer engaging with them. I'm observing them. But that's the biggest problem you know with I mean? Portland, right? Is that it, it, it's infested with people who just 
parrot that same line, you know, how how do you, how do you overcome in the city of Portland, a population that will believe all of that without even questioning? Right. Uh, Well, I mean, it's taken generations to get here. I mean, this obviously isn't the first rodeo. I mean, look at the hippie revolution and Mm -hmm. (laughs) this goes way back. Yeah, no, but it it escalates every time, right? I mean, you you look at the WTO riots in 1999, and then you look at uh, Occupy Wall Street, and then you look at the uh, inauguration in 2016-17. Every time it gets worse and worse and worse. Yeah. The swing is going swinger higher and higher. Yeah. And at some point, again, these so many groups, there'll be so many militia or whatever groups, local neighborhood groups, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call them. Leftist and right wing. Oh, yeah. yeah. And and all over. The, there will be so many that even intelligence analysts with a team of 100 analysts will not be able to keep track of everything. Right. It'll Because they'll be from Key West all the way up to Anchorage. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. Over yeah. in Hawaii. They'll be, they'll be everywhere. And it'll be too many to keep track of. Right. And we know that people are paying to tra- uh, 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 transport them from hotspot to hotspot. Right. Exactly. Those are what we would call the main G-force, right? Yeah. And, and uh, that would be the small sliver that's full-time fighters, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then after that would be the auxiliary and, and, mm-hmm. and then the support base. And then the, the locals that come out to support who whoever is Yeah. The auxiliary. Yeah. We call that the auxiliary. Yeah. And, um, well, these are things, specific things I look for when I go to conflict. And in Afghanistan, we were mostly fighting auxiliary. Little, we call them little T Taliban, right? <laughs> Big T were the, were the yeah. main force that fight seven days a week. They go train in Pakistan and then go to different places in Afghanistan to fight. Those are the ones that often would do suicide attacks or whatever, mm-hmm. or set up the cells. Uh, little T are the local farmers. They usually fight within a very short distance of there. But so mostly what we were fighting in Afghanistan was little T, ox, okay. Okay. we'll call them ox or auxiliary, right? Yeah, yeah. The, so often you're not fighting any big T, it's mm-hmm. just little T. But here, clearly the guys that are out attacking, um, you know, they'll go up and hit Seattle, then come here and hit here and then go to San Francisco or whatever. Oakland. That's your, yeah. that's your big A Antifa, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and that will be, usually, that's always the smallest sliver of, of any force like this. The next will be auxiliary. And so one thing that I'm very interested in is how big are the auxiliaries in these various places? That was when, you know, when I was in Hong Kong last year and when I realized that they had a big auxiliary, that was when I realized it was a pretty in a big support base. That was, you know, that was when I realized they have a viable insurgency there. Right. So that's what you're looking for here is see how big that insurgency is. Yeah, there's is. certain things I'm looking for. I mean, it's not haphazard. I'm, I'm out here with a stethoscope and I'm checking the temperature. <laughs> and I'm like, you know talking with law enforcement. How's your intelligence going? How's your human going? Yeah. Because that's a, that's a blood pressure. Like when I went to Afghanistan 2006, I was asking British and American intelligence guys all the time. Yeah. How's your human going? And I'm not asking you what they're telling you. I'm asking two things. Is it accurate? And is it increasing or decreasing? Right. And so what's Portland saying? Uh, not good for them. Not, not good for them. But for me, it's flooding. I can't even process it all. Really? I mean, so many people want to talk in right. Portland. So, so, but what's the human intel saying? What is it growing? Is it increasing? Um, I think the best, I, I want to be cautious with what I say because I haven't developed a good enough, uh, you know, my picture well enough to say from their side. Okay. Uh, but my sense is that they're kind of static. And, and in other words, they, they live in this environment and they've kind of grown 
Whereas I'm coming into it energetic, right? Mm -hmm. Like for me, this is a super easy place to grow Intel network. Yeah. This is like amazingly, this is like, you know, planting weeds in Florida. You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's like, and uh, the the Intel network is just growing so fast, it's hard to process. And that's the people that are against Antifa and BLM here. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's been something that I can only learn by coming and seeing, seeing for myself. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's clear that outlying areas outside of the middle of Portland tend to be pretty conservative. It seems everywhere I go. Yeah. It, it, the suburbs are still pretty Democrat. I mean, you right. know, it, it's hard to get a Republican elected, you know, in the surrounding metro area, but you go out in the woods or you go out to yeah. Eastern Oregon or whatever. It's very conservative. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different world out here. So again, but we we've seen that they have had rallies in small towns. Uh, they've they've shipped out Antifa to Pendleton and Umatilla and Hermiston and Lagrand and Klamath Falls and Roseburg. You know right. these tiny little uh, uh, timber towns and and little little farming uh, communities. You mean sent out like G four the main force fighters? Yeah. yeah, they'll they'll send out some some people and but uh, I, there was one in uh, I believe it was Klamath Falls in June that had something like three hundred people show up. Right, you know, and that that's another thing to look for. By the way, is how many out of state plates are there? Because, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, because that would be your main force, <laughs> that, right? Which will be your smallest force. Uh, but that you're full timers, right? Right. But they got so much people that they can go to these little conservative towns, even right. though most of the townsfolk are going to oppose. But remember, them. this is this is how you do smoke and mirrors and make yourself look bigger. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so and it's a very effective way here. So now you end up getting headlines in all these little different places. And it yeah, looks like, yeah. hey, we've got a in reality, it's like a thousand guys showing up everywhere. Right. And, and, and so how big a threat is that if it turns out just to be smoke and mirrors in a, in a one, thousand guys? One, there's there's. There's ways to certainly start sorting this out, mm-hmm. and that's why I'm working with people now to get networks set up. Gotcha. Uh, um, and, 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 and we can sort it out. It just takes time. Yeah. You know, for instance, whenever they, as an example, we have technologies now that we didn't have even 20 years ago. Sure. Uh, when they come to uh, protest in your little town out in Nowhereville, mm-hmm. uh, photograph all their faces if they've got their face. And, and we start collecting these photos, mm-hmm. and we put them in Lightroom. Yep. Uh, and it's got facial recognition. Sure, sure. Like, uh, and I have identified people like that before. Is it, you know, you know, it doing facial recognition and bingo, here's somebody I didn't, and there they are, they're somewhere else. Yep, yep. And it's, and it's, you know, things that your, your brain would never pick up, but your computer can do it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's actually very true. And, uh, they've done that to us for many years. I know that my photo is all over the internet from people taking pictures at, Republican Party meetings and, right. and that sort of thing. And, you know, that's always raised my suspicion because you have no reason otherwise to be taking that picture. What are you doing? You know? Right. Yeah. Adding, maybe adding you to their database. That's right. For instance, yeah. when Andy No, he keeps publishing all the, he's doing more public service than he probably can even imagine. Yeah. Like when he keeps publishing all these faces of people that are arrested. Yeah. Take those, add them to your, add them to your uh, database. Yeah. Do a facial recognition. You know, like Portland 1, Portland 2, Portland 56, whatever. <laughs> and then, you know, it could be two years from now, bingo, there they are in Atlanta. Right, right. right. And now, or you know, yeah. three weeks ago, they were in Kenosha or exactly. something like that. Yeah. 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 But, and then, you know, Portland. So we, we've got a, a population that's so willing to believe the propaganda that comes out from their side. And then we got, you know, 
Ted Wheeler and, and Joanne Hardesty and Mike Schmidt right. running the levers of power right. who are actually either members of or very strongly affiliated with Antifa. So yeah. how do we how do we overcome this? We're doing it. I mean, we're working on it right now. Mm. I mean, you, that you and I are even sitting together, it shows that our side's coming. I just flew in from half the world away. Yeah. And so there's more people that are coming to join battle. I'm obviously not going to join with a weapon. I'm joining with my keyboard and my camera and that sort of thing. But these are incredibly effective and important tools. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And also the ability to build these networks uh, and organize. For instance, uh, uh, while I'm here, I will find somebody that can devote their energies to to developing this photo database mm. so that we have our own, right, that we can use. Yeah. And so that we don't have to crowdsource every little face. We can start, you know, these are, these are highly doable things. These aren't highly sophisticated. Everything exists. You just have to physically do the work. So so your, your bottom line goal uh, through election day is intelligence gathering and figuring out what exactly yeah. is being planned. Oh yeah. And it's, well, there's the local issues going on, hmm. but what I'm doing is developing my network. I'll do it nationally across coast to coast. Mm -hmm. I just started here, but I'll also be going to Seattle, uh, this week, uh, or at the end of the week. And I'll be here with proud boys on Saturday. Okay. And then, uh, and then I'll head up to Seattle. And right. then I'll come back here for the election. That's the plan right now, subject to change. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I want to be here for the election and then start moving my way to other locations, San Francisco, Los Angeles, out to Texas, Utah, Idaho. I want to see all the different – I want to get a feel for – is. there's no truth in the world without context. You have to develop context. Without context, then – you don't have anything. You know, it's funny when I travel around the world, I go to a country like Luxembourg, tiny country. And if they see their weather map, they'll, if you're whatever state you're in, it'll be like Oregon weather. It'll mm -hmm. just be like little Oregon on the map. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it, every country you go to, it'll be like whatever your country is, whatever your little island is. It'll, <laughs> if it's New York City, you'll have like. Because that's all days. anybody really cares about. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a tiny context. And yeah. obviously the weather doesn't come from your state or city right yeah and so sweeping across so the globe yeah what that's why i came to portland portland is a big part of this weather system right yeah and so yeah, yeah. and so i want to get my nodes set up in places like portland and uh and it takes time but like iraq and afghanistan you can do it and mm -hmm. uh if you know what you're doing it doesn't take as much time right like now i'm better than i've ever been at doing <laughs> this stuff and uh, because, you know, the more you ride the bike, the better you get at riding the bike. Sure. sure. And so setting up the network and, and getting all the things in, in place to figure this out, it's well underway. Yeah. Well, good. Uh, I'm glad you're on the ground. I'm glad you're gathering intel. And I'll look forward to further conversations. Maybe we could have you back on and uh, uh, get an update and figure out exactly what they're planning. Because, it, you know, everything I'm reading is it's going gonna, it's gonna to pop off pretty big after, after Election Day. It could. If yeah. I didn't think that it had a high chance, I would not have come home to America. I would right. be literally in Taiwan. Yep. Uh, Just so hanging out and not, enjoying your family. <laughs> not hanging out. Not Thailand. I live in Thailand. I'm no. talking about Taiwan. Oh, yes. Because yes, China's yeah. threatening to invade Taiwan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so there's, and Taiwan is the new Hong Kong, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and after that, the next fallback will be certain small islands and then Japan. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then the United States. And not necessarily invasion, but internal. They're 
causing so much internal conflict right now or they're helping it. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the line, the, the organic structure is already there, but they're nurturing it, right? Yep. It's nothing new. I mean, we do information more ourselves. We're not like innocent victims. <laughs> you know, we, we actually do the same game on others. And and it's, uh, a, it's a dog-eat-dog world. we got to you know, take care is. of our interests. Right? It is. People say, oh, you're whining about it. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm a big boy. This is this is rockin' sockin' robots right here, and uh, and um, we're here to knock their block off. You know what I mean? And yeah. we can take out China. We can take out CCP. We took out the Soviet Union back when a lot of people thought that it could not be done. And that was a you know Ronald Reagan came up and he wasn't into containment. He's like, no, we're going to knock their block off. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people thought that it couldn't be done, but through a lot of very intelligent strategy with fits and starts, it worked. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is it worked and it worked quite well. Part of it was Poland. Poland was key. Sure. Uh, and also Afghanistan. We helped uh, pin a lot of their troops in Afghanistan. And also we uh, encouraged the Saudis to drop their oil prices, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, Soviet Union was in, uh, still heavily on dependent on. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. also SDI strategic defense initiative, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, brilliant stars and all that. We, you know, causing them to increase their defense spending and uh, to the point where finally they just couldn't take it and they collapsed. And, you know, it's it's really interesting. If you look back on that from the 30,000 foot view, that only took eight years. I mean, you know, 10 years. It, uh, it, uh, Reagan started it and then, you know, it finished under H.W. Bush. It was and, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that he recognized, too, was that their economy was not as big and as strong as they made out. Right. And it was very vulnerable, for instance, with oil. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then getting the Saudis, you know, who we have this frenemy thing going with, (laughs) you know, uh, obviously, you know, but but they do have levers that they can pull in the cockpit like oil prices. Mm hmm. And for better and for worse for us. But yeah, that, right. Sometimes they yeah. use it against us. Sometimes yeah. they use it against them. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, it's funny when people are like, uh, you know, when, when Donald Trump comes up and he's like America first. And I'm like, listen, I've been all over this world and there's not a single country that doesn't put their country first. Right. You know, <laughs> they, it just does not exist. Yep. Yep. That's right. All right, Michael Yon, uh, we could go on forever, but uh, we got to wrap it up. You you have a, a riot to go to, so uh. <laughs> yeah. Wow, we went for a long time. An we hour did, yeah. Uh, uh, that's a, that's our hour and a half, half hour. So <laughs> all right, uh, we'll we'll be back in touch here soon, and good luck out there. And uh, let me know if you hear anything interesting, and I'll uh, I'll be sure to Will keep do. in touch with you. I can't believe I, we went for an hour and a half. <laughs> I know it's crazy. All right, thanks a lot. If you like this podcast, the best way you can support it is by leaving a rating and subscribing. If you really, really like it, please consider a paid sponsorship by going to anchor.fm slash behind the curtain and clicking the support button. And don't forget to buy my book, Behind the Curtain, Inside the Network of Progressive Billionaires and Their Campaign to Undermine Democracy. Now it's on to my second interview with Sean Kennedy of the Maryland Public Policy Institute. Welcome back to the Behind the Curtain podcast. My name is Jeff Reynolds. I'm your host, and I'm joined today by Sean Kennedy. He is a visiting fellow at the Maryland Public Policy Institute. He's an expert on criminal justice reform, and that's why I wanted to have him on the show today, uh, talk about some of these kind of uh, lax policies on prosecutions, on letting people out of jail and all of that kind of stuff we're seeing here in Portland with our Soros-backed district attorney in Multnomah County, 
so Sean, welcome in. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah, this is this is great. I, I always enjoy our talks. So, um, yeah, uh, I wanted to talk to you because here in Portland, we have a district attorney who is actively out there saying publicly that he's not going to prosecute many of the riot crimes that are being committed in downtown Portland. And we're uh, seeing repeat offenders. You know, we the, the one guy that shot the... Uh, uh, Trump supporter was an Antifa guy that's been in Kenosha, has been in uh, all kinds of different places, and um, uh, was never, he actually brought a gun to one of the rallies downtown Portland and was released and not charged for that crime. He's a felon in possession of firearm at a, at a riot and wasn't, wasn't even charged. So what is your take on, I know you've done a lot of research on this, what, what is the effect of these lacks on crime policies in cities like Portland and all around America? I mean, the, the short answer is it's a breakdown of the rule of law. We effectively see not only criminals getting off, but people losing faith in the justice system as a whole when there is one system for one set of people, especially in the case where even if it's uniformly applied in one jurisdiction, the jurisdiction over doesn't follow those rules. So crossing the city or state line or a county line will uh, will engender completely different results. When people see that kind of uh, apartheid system of justice, they lose faith in it, and uh, you see even further breakdown in law and order and, and fairness. So where does this stuff all end? What's, what's the logical end game for these uh, soft-on-crime policies? I mean, their logical end game is they said they want to cut the uh, total incarcerated population by half. 50% is what the ACLU declared in 2015 when they took $50 million from the Open Society Foundation. Uh, They declared as such. Others basically want to end the drug war as we see it and and legalize all these things because they think that is somehow – uh, somehow the root of all these problems. And I hate to say that's on the least nefarious end. On the more nefarious end, the entire criminal justice system is under threat. There are individuals who've written op-eds that have been published in the New York Times calling to abolish prisons. Of course, they never offer alternatives, just like the Minneapolis the Police Department is backtracking on abolishing its police department because they don't have a reasonable alternative that anyone's going to listen to. Uh, so what we're left with is is the absence of a solution to the current crisis in law and order, uh, instead of improving the current system or even replacing it with something else, they have no option and create a vacuum. I mean, it's nothing short of anarchy is what they're allowing to happen, even if that's not what they believe will happen. Yeah, you know, they, they often claim that the police being militarized is what's causing all the violence in our cities. Um, here in uh, Portland, we also had a defund movement where they were going to uh, implement a new program with rapid response counselors for mental health and drug uh, related crimes or, or, you know, people freaking out in the streets and that kind of thing. Uh, but they also just announced yesterday that, oh, uh, we're not going to be able to implement that for at least a year. So now we have fewer cops on the streets and uh, the replacement program is is already behind. So um, what, I, I, I just, I, don't you... 
to me, it seems like if you wanted better cops and if you really wanted to solve the problem of cops shooting unarmed people or unarmed minorities or, or whatever the situation is, wouldn't it be more funding and more training? I think making cops better, more effective, more well-trained, and, and I'll be frank, more highly accountable would be a great thing. The problem is all the solutions that are being proposed by the people who are inherently hostile to police aren't actually seeking to do that, to make police better, but to undermine their role in society, uh, not make them more moral, more professional, more disciplined so that these instances of abuses don't happen, but rather just to eliminate them altogether. That's their solution. I mean, to put it in a, in a, in a, in a more tangible way in First, in the early 90s, Bill Bratton under Rudy Giuliani came in to become the uh, commissioner of police for New York City. That police department, post even post Serpico, was downtrodden. Not only was their morale low, their corruption was high, a lot of problems. And at that time, they had around 2,000 murders a year in the early 90s. As of high as 1990, they had 2,300 murders. Uh, in 1998, they had 600 in a short period of time, in eight years from 1993 to 1995 years, 1993 to 1998, they saw murders drop by o- over two-thirds. And eventually, by 2018, we saw under 300 murders, nearly a 90% drop in the total number of murders in a city that had grown by 25%. So it wasn't a per capita rate. New York City's per capita homicide rate in 2018 was half the national average half wow no big city in the country has half the mur- the half the murder rate of, of the national average it's just unbelievable how successful they were and in and in contrast baltimore had 60 murders per 100,000 while new york city had 3 so just think about that it's 20 wow. times as bad in baltimore as it was in new york city in 2018 and so de-policing has real consequences, and we're already seeing it in New York under the post-George Floyd protests and, and Bill de Blasio's uh, repeated stand-down orders in front of things. We've seen shootings go up nearly 200%. We've seen homicides go up almost 50% in the, in the two months compared to the year before. And we've seen arrests fall by almost 50% in New York City over the two years before. It's just unfathomable to think that this is occurring in a city that had made so much progress. And, uh, and the solution is to cut the budget of NYPD is to reduce the amount of training, reduce the amount of equipment. It's, it's, it's kind of uh, laughable that these people are, uh, are being listened to. Okay. So, and and I agree with you that um, there's a lot of uh, wrongheaded thinking on this. Uh, to play devil's advocate, a, a lot of our friends on the libertarian side, uh, maybe not the law and order Republicans, but uh, the more libertarian types would say that um, there's no need for cops to have an MRAP or uh, cops to be as militarized as they are, and that uh, we should rely on people to uh, self-govern more. Um I guess what's your answer to that? Because there's a lot of folks on uh, sort of on the right that are pushing for criminal justice reform and to lower sentences or to uh, give more um, uh, uh, lenience and sentencing and that kind of thing. 
Well, I'll do I'll do two 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 points in response to our libertarian friends, uh, and I and I could go tit for tat on their Texas example and their Georgia example, and often how they misuse and misreport the data about those places. But regardless of their claimed success in in some criminal justice reform programs, in terms of that, of course, you know sometimes you don't need an MRAP. But I is I would love to have seen Philadelphia PD have MRAPs when a guy was shooting into the street in 2019 and and wounded two officers uh, during a hostage takeout that the SWAT team could have approached closer to the building and limited the amount of civilian casualties. That's something that there is a function for an MRAP. Now, does every small town in America need an MRAP? No. Do they all need automatic weapons? No. Is it something that you only need when you need it? Yes. Now, the, the point being is, do they all need these things all the time and everything like that? That's a reasonable critique. But I'll point this out to you. I'd love it if people who like to point out the MRAPs and all this other military gear actually looked at what the military surplus transfers consist of in the uh, Defense Logistics Agency database. I actually went through it. In uh, an area in New York, in New York State where I'm, uh, where I'm familiar, they included 35 first aid kits for a small town, a heart defibrillator, a radar gun, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't all machine guns and helicopters. The state police got binoculars. You don't want the state police to have binoculars. They got a helicopter. It wasn't an Apache. It was a traffic copter, so they could get faster to scenes where they could save people's lives on the throughway in New York. I mean, this is happening all across the country. And what the George Floyd policing bill does is it shuts down all of that stuff. It doesn't single out military equipment or explain what that has to be. It just says, if it comes from DOD, it's bad. And, and, and that kind of blanket approach is dangerous. Additionally, what I, one thing I'll say is uh, uh, the forebearer of a lot of modern conservatism, you would say neoconservatism, Irving Kristol famously said, a, liberal, a, conser- a neoconservative is a liberal mugged by reality. I would say a neo-law and order type is just a criminal justice reformer literally mugged. All that's going to take for these individuals to change their tune is for them to have crime come home to them. And where I go with that is very simple. We, as people who believe in law and order and tough on crime and stiff sanctions and a fair and equitable justice system that always need to fix and improve, is we are victims of our own success. There is no better way to put it. As the New York City example pointed out, and I can tell you nationally in 1980, Hom- uh, violent crime had ridded to, r- risen to 900 per 100,000. There was a violent crime wow. for every 1,000 person every year in the United States. At That's the, insane. At the bottom, in the 2013-14, when we reached the, the, the valley of, of crime, it was in the 300s. It had been cut by that much, by, by over 150% or whatever you want to say. But here's the shocking thing that people don't understand. When the FBI started collecting statistics that we could use as comparable data in the early 60s, violent crime is still up 250% from those days. So we're much safer than we were in 1980, 1990, even 2000, but we're still not as safe as we once were. Well, that's and, very interesting. What do you attribute that to? I mean, the unrest in the 60s, there's a, a economic dislocation. There was a lot of things that happened. There was also a, a huge decline in social mores and, and other things that kept crime in check. Um, 
in urban centers. I mean, when you don't trust or believe that the police are going to do anything or have faith that the police are going to do the right thing, you stop following the law and then one crime begets another. So you're saying that um, the attitude of being anti-cop is actually the cause, not the result. Yes, absolutely. There's a, there's a notion that the police are to blame for these problems. The system is broken in some respects, and I, will, I can discuss you know, some of my solutions to that. We talk about qualified immunity or whatever. I'm a huge proponent of maintaining qualified immunity and other things like that. But the reason that we're even discussing the idea that we can let trial lawyers, which is what qualified immunity repeal does, let's trial lawyers bankrupt cops personally. Right now, you can sue the police department if you're mistreated. You definitely can, and the city will pay out if they lose. But you can't sue a personal officer who's in the performance of his duties for committing uh, uh, an infraction. The problem isn't that he's immune from civil lawsuits. The problem is that he's effectively become immune in some jurisdictions from criminal and disciplinary sanctions. And that is a problem. We all need to acknowledge that cops need to be held accountable. And that starts with leadership at the police department level, that the cops who do wrong are disgracing the badge and need to be taken out. But that doesn't mean that every cop should be sued for every interaction. I mean, one of the things that I think is so striking is people keep saying, you know, this person had 18 complaints against him. Talk to any frontline cop, even the most ethical, liberal, progressive. If they were making arrests on a daily basis, they have dozens of complaints against them because somebody was uh, upset. The idea that there could be a payday at the end of that complaint will only beget more lawsuits and more complaints that are unjustified. And unless we have loser pay laws, the cops have to pay for their own legal defense. Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, th that's all very uh, interesting. I, I hadn't really considered that. I know that I've talked to uh, several cops about the qualified immunity thing, and, and that doesn't seem like a pathway to actual reform to me. It doesn't, it doesn't do something which is what we want to do, which is prevent the actions from happening in the first place. The idea of bankrupting a bad cop doesn't make a, a mediocre cop do a better job. It just says, oh, that's not going to happen to me. Or alternatively, somebody's not going to join the force or retire early or be more reticent to make tough calls. And that's going to impact public safety when a cop decides not to make an arrest or not use force when the alternative is, Oh, I don't want to get sued, so I'm going to avoid any kind of confrontation. Well, oh, never mind that. Uh, also, the the prosecutors who refuse to actually prosecute crimes. Uh, it, we had that instance here in Portland uh, after the federal law enforcement left uh, from uh, protecting the federal courthouse, the Oregon State Police came in for two weeks and did the job, but then they let the contract run out and didn't renew and put out a really strong statement saying, well, we don't have any faith that the, uh, based on his statements and his actions, the d district attorney is going to prosecute the crimes and our, essentially our uh, resources are better deployed in areas where crime will be prosecuted. Exactly. I mean, the, I saw the Oregon State Police, and then they they, they later uh, federally deputized some of them to bring them back in so they would have the ability to refer cases directly to the U.S. attorney. Exactly. Let me tell you, a, a study done by the Law Enforcement Legal Defense Fund that I helped with uh, studied six jurisdictions run by these so-called reform prosecutors. Dallas, Philadelphia, 
Baltimore, San Antonio, Chicago, and St. Louis County, not city, so not Kim Gardner, but Wesley Bell. We found in the years compared to the same amount of years of their predecessors, and these predecessors, by the way, weren't right-wing Jeff Sessions types. These were urban city prosecutors who were just average to above average in terms of their willingness to, uh, to go after crime that there was a 30% decline in Dallas in the first year of the new prosecutor, John Crizo. There was a 27% decline in Philadelphia in guilty verdicts. There was a 23% decline in Baltimore, 17% in Bexar, 13% in Cook, and 10% in St. Louis County. Now, what that actually meant when you got down to it was a number of the actual sub-crimes were hugely under-prosecuted. So, we were seeing a 15% change in robbery convictions, 17% in ag assault, which is often includes shootings. Uh, auto theft saw a 30% decline in guilty pleas. These people are getting off or their cases are being dropped or whatever. And as a result in Dallas, and this will bring us back to Oregon because you, you mentioned it in the, in the case because Dallas has a great parallel there. We saw huge increases, increase 19% increase in ag assault and, we saw a 15% overall increase in violent crime, including a 27% increase in murder. Now, why the murder number is important is this. May of 2019 saw the highest monthly tally in Dallas history for murders. There were 40 murders in Dallas. Wow. In one month. The city barely has 150 murders in a year on average years. Last year, it exceeded 200. Now, why this matters is because Governor Greg Abbott came in and said, you're not prosecuting crime and the police are unable to get a hold of these people because he's basically turned down gun cases, turned down drug cases, and these are people that they're locking up for one crime, though they suspect of another crime. This is common prosecutor parlance. You get them where they are. If you could get them on the drug charge and you know they're good for a murder, but you can't prove it yet, you hold them on what you can and then go. Right. So they can't do that because he's dropping these these what he's considered low-level or discriminatory cases. Murder spiked through the roof. So Greg Abbott sent in the state police. He sent in the Texas Rangers and Texas State Police, and they they controlled South Dallas, which is the most dangerous neighborhood in Dallas, for three months. Violent crime dropped by 40%. <laughs> Of course, they were complaining that they're doing stops and all these things, and it was discriminatory. But that murder number would have been even higher. That 27% annualized murder rate increase would have been even higher if not for Abbott's intervention. Yeah. Well, I know um, there's talk of him also uh, uh, taking over the Austin City Police because uh, they are, comparatively speaking, very liberal uh, as – compared to the rest of Texas. And they've seen a huge, you know, they've got homeless problems, they've had riots, they've had uh, lots of uh, protests, and and that's where you go if you want to protest in in Texas. And um, there's actually been talk that uh, Abbott could just take over the Austin City Police altogether. And and he may have to because at the end of the day, his job is to protect the people of Texas. And there are non-voters that are non-Austin voters who live, who work 
in and around Austin who shouldn't be victims of crime. And he is, you know, him and the attorney general, Ken Paxton, are the chief law enforcement officers and responsible for public safety in Texas. It's not up to a city to decriminalize crime. And uh, there are real consequences when you do so. Uh, I wanted to mention one story about how this has real life consequences when you have leniency towards supposed low level offenders. An individual named Hassan Elliott had illegally possessed a firearm. He was a convicted felon before. So he was what's called felon in possession of a firearm. He was arrested in 2017 and uh, held without bond or held with high bail. And when the new Soros DA came in, Larry Krasner, in early 2018, he immediately released Hassan Elliott. Hassan Elliott then was caught with cocaine in violation of his parole and then was again released. And then immediately, the same day, Elliot killed another man on the street, murdered him because he's a gang member. He killed another probably likely gang member on the street. It's, then, then it gets better. He's wanted for murder. So they put out a murder warrant on Elliot. But his court date for the cocaine possession is still upcoming. So after he's wanted for murder, Krasner drops the drug charge. What? Why? I don't, like it's just it's just unbelievable. So he's still got a murder. Wow. Got a murder warrant. So Philly uh, fugitive apprehensive squad finally identifies him the next year, last year in March 2019, or uh, 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 I should say later that 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 year in in um, and and catches up to him. And in the process of doing that, he execution style kills. James O'Connor, a Corporal James O'Connor of the Philadelphia Police Department. Good um, Lord. This guy was in for a gun possession, then had drugs, which automatically revoked his parole, but wasn't held on those, and then released, and then he dropped the case, which I feel like regardless of the practicality of it, it's just rubbing salt in the wound, after he murders someone, and then he murders another person, in this case, a police officer. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. That's also a parole violation. There's no way he should have not been in jail. It it it, it's, it boggles the mind that these individuals do that and and get away with it. And uh, we're seeing it across um, we're seeing it across the country. And and we only profiled six count six jurisdictions. Uh, you know, for want of data and some of the other ones, they were difficult to to turn over their data. But the ones we could get into the six. Um, we saw violent crime going up in every single one of them while both overall prosecutions and violent crime prosecutions were being lost or dropped. And uh, the result is that there's more criminals on the street. People are less safe and uh, people have less faith in the justice system. One thing I would say, Jeff, that's important that goes to police reform and goes to, um, and goes to uh, prosecution and everything is something uh that uh, that some the, some very prominent law enforcement officials have referred to me as the vicious and the virtuous cycle. In the vicious cycle, charges are dropped, people get out, they see that they personally have impunity, the neighbors and their community members notice the impunity that was given to somebody who committed a crime, and then that person goes on to commit another crime, and they get other people who seem that they will also get off scot-free. And therefore, they don't trust the justice system because the justice system failed them. It failed their community. It failed to hold someone to account. I hate to say this. Even if the rules are unfair, 
it's somewhat better to enforce an unfair rule and fix it afterwards than to not enforce a rule that you have because then you basically are uh, Mexico where Mexico has lots of laws and none of them are enforced. Um, and um, I mean, Mexico has some of the strictest gun control in the world. And uh, I don't know if you've ever been to Mexico, but there's a lot of guns in Mexico. Just out. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so, a lot of beheadings too. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's bad, but, but that lawlessness can also, if turned on its head, create what's called a virtuous cycle in the case of policing is we have a huge problem in, especially in inner cities and urban neighborhoods where people don't trust the police. So they won't be cooperating witnesses when they see a crime because they fear the criminal more than the police. And I'm not suggesting the police need to be in a position of creating fear. They need to be presenting a, a, a culture of protection where you by cooperating will be protected against those who are, you are helping, helping us put away. And when people don't trust that, they lose faith and the vicious cycle starts all over again on the community members part. They don't call the cops or whatever it is. And they basically let themselves live in lawlessness or they are resigned to it. Alternatively, when the police act professionally, uphold their promises, the prosecutors do what they promise the people, the judges follow through on it. People have more and more trust and faith in the system and then are willing to come forward the next time something happens. And people who are on the wrong side of the law know that there could or will be consequences for their action and therefore are less likely to commit them. So do you think this um, a vicious cycle that you discussed, is that at least partly to blame for the uh, racial animus between minority groups and, and the cops? See, actually, there's a Gallup poll just came out in a and a and sub data from that Gallup poll done by something called the Center for uh, Advancing Opportunity, which actually is semi libertarian think tank backed by the Cokes. Um, the Gallup data in there actually shows that African Americans, particularly urban African Americans and Hispanics, overwhelmingly want more cops. They want more cops. Now, they yeah, still the, have- the 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 uh, leaders in uh, the community leaders in Harlem said the the same thing, right? They they wanted more cops in their neighborhood. But these aren't even the elite in these communities. These are man on the street, you know, working Joes. He's the janitor here. He's the manager at Walgreens. He's whatever. They live every day in the in fear of crime. They want more cops to help them. Now they want the cops to treat them fairly and better, and that goes to professionalism. But they're not inherently hostile to the cops. They just want a fair shake. I mean, my friend Gerard, who's an African-American fellow, is a former Secretary of Education in uh, Virginia, uh, told a story in the Washington, in the, in the U- in USA Today about his two experiences in South Central L.A. And I, I grew up not far from L.A. My dad taught in South Central. And in the first one, he's pulled over with his cousin, two black guys in a car, early 20s, driving down the street in South Central, and the cops jump out, guns drawn, get the F out of the car, get the F out of the car. And they say, get down on the ground, get down on the ground. They, they, they don't cuff him, I think. They just put him on the, in the gravel. And they say, he goes, what's wrong? What's wrong? And he goes, we think you stole this car, uh, blah, blah, blah. And um, he says, check the registration. Everything checks out. It's Gerard's car. It's not, you know, nothing's wrong. The cops let him go without saying a word. They don't apologize. They don't say anything. They don't do, they just, they pulled out guns and yelled at him for 10 minutes, face down in the gravel and don't even like say, Oh, mistake or whatever. Then a couple months later, he gets pulled over again and the cop pulls him over and says he has 
six hundred dollars, which in nineteen ninety is what you know is a couple thousand dollars, whatever today, um, it in tickets. LAPD could have taken him to jail right there for failure to pay, impounded his car, and that would have been the end of it. The guy said, "What's the what's the deal?" And he explained that his friend had run up tickets, seemingly it seems like, and not told him, and that he'll take care of it, he'll pay it, it's, it please do it. The cop took the ticket, wrote a little cryptic note on the back of the ticket, and handed it back to Gerard and told him show up to court in whatever days. He shows up. Gerard doesn't know what the ticket says. He hands it to the judge. The The judge says, your fi- fine is reduced to $25. Keep teaching the kids. Gerard was an inner city school teacher. He had two, within months apart, extremely different experiences with LAPD. The point is to normalize the second one and limit the latter one. Uh, and, and how do we do that is a challenge, but it is not worth getting rid of the police to do it. We need to find the balance. I mean, I don't know if you guys all saw this story, but I think it was in Florida. Uh, an African-American guy was out jogging and he got pulled over by the cops saying he met the description for some burglary suspect to 99%. And they uh, cuffed him and held him and talked to him for a while. And they checked it out. They ran all this stuff and figured it out. And they said, um, they said, you're not, um, you're not the guy. We're sorry. We apologize. Thank you for being so cooperative, blah, 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 blah. The guy, it turns out, was a medic and uh, a military police officer, retired. I mean, he's out of the service now, in the military and in the Army. And he has respect for cops or whatever. And he said he was upset that he got, you know, harangued or whatever. But he thought that they dealt with it pretty well. You know, he wishes it was, you know, was better and it didn't get, it didn't happen. But he wasn't, like, angry about it. And he says, my biggest lesson is don't fight back. Don't be lessened, you know treat them with respect and I'll treat you with respect. Now, the problem is, could they have handled that even more politely? Yes, maybe. But his response was very civil to something that a lot of people would be very angry about. Um, And the cops tried their best to be polite and respectful. Yeah, and and that's sort of the opposite of what happened with Jacob Blake and George Floyd, right? Yes. I mean, Jacob Blake, I think, is a little – little more complicated with uh with what occurred there and i I, i'm i'm not pretending to be an expert but with george floyd from the beginning of that the crime was so minor that he committed their use of force uh was not necessary and their ability to detain him uh he wasn't being violent He, he wasn't doing a lot of things and then and then they they escalated in a way that obviously took his life and uh, will likely result in criminal prosecution or is resulting in criminal prosecution. But every single police abuse of case deserves a fair hearing and a, and a full hearing. And what I was saying earlier is our disciplinary and criminal prosecution system of police stepping over is derelict. And that is a problem that we all need to address but suing cops isn't going to solve that it's just going to bankrupt innocent cops in the meantime while you didn't solve the disciplinary problems in these things one of the things that i I read in a a libertarian's op-ed the other day which i found shocking myself and i actually checked and said oh i don't believe this this isn't real there are 35 police officers in minnesota have been convicted of felonies who are still in law enforcement wow 
<laughs> wow. That's so. That, that, that there's no there's and Minnesota has the fewest number of people whose uh, like accreditation to be a law enforcement officer um, has been revoked of almost any state of similar size population wise per capita or whatever. Well, so it doesn't that even I mean they can't even carry a firearm at that point, right? Well, I'm not I'm not 100 percent sure what the what the uh, what what the what the reason is maybe they have an exception for that in Minnesota state law, but it, it seems like it's a it's an outlier that Minnesota is particularly egregious in protecting bad cops, um, and that needs to be addressed. And there's disciplinary and criminal mechanisms to do that. Seeking justice in civil court doesn't solve the problem if he got off scot free and gets to keep his badge, but you bankrupted him, or he doesn't go to jail for killing somebody, but you took his house. Right, it's it's just vindictiveness at that point. Yeah, and we're 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 dealing with something here, where and this is why I brought up Bill Bratton earlier. Is the military post Vietnam was a disaster, heroin addiction and discipline. All these things are going on, and they brought in a system of strong leadership, effective training, and broad authority to enact that training. And they turned the military around. So by 1991, when we went to war in the Gulf, we had the best, most disciplined military in the world, again, because we turned it around. Bill Bratton did the same thing in both New York and in LAPD. If you're not from Los Angeles, uh, before, in addition to the Rodney King riots, we had a guy named Willie Williams who was like a joke because he, he, the old Philadelphia cops eating donuts and drinking coffee while watching criminals run by that's kind of his approach and subsequent guys were terrible too in the nineties and early two thousands to the point where there was a scandal called the Rampart division scandal, which sort of reminds you of, of Serpico or anything like this. It was a rogue unit of the cops doing bad stuff. It was terrible. And the federal government under Bill Clinton put in a consent decree that George W. Bush finalized when he first came in. And the consent decree basically limited some of the, the things that put oversight over the LAPD. Bratton took, took over LAPD when the consent decree went into effect. Harvard did a study when Bratton left and the consent decree was about to be lifted. And it found that the average satisfaction with Los Angeles Police Department had risen dramatically where 82% thought they were doing a great or a, or a good job. They were affecting more arrests, not fewer, more arrests. More of those arrests were resulting in felony charges, and more of those charges were resulting in convictions than before the consent decree. Bill Bratton did that. In every other instance almost of consent decrees, the department's de-police. Leadership matters, and bad leaders beget bad cops because they have no one to look up to. They have no expectation of accountability or discipline. And that's what's occurring in many of these departments. Yeah, I can certainly see that in uh, Portland with uh, Ted Wheeler. Uh, that kind of leadership leads to these kinds of results. If you demoralize the cops from a political leadership, that's dangerous. Because then they don't think the, the mayor or whomever the city council has their backs. But the internal leadership matters too. I mean, in Baltimore, where I study a great deal... This is this people just I don't know if they can wrap their head around this, but since before the Freddie Gray riots, 2015 to today, they've had five police chiefs in five years. Yeah, uh, uh, Portland has had three in the last four. 
this revolving door of police uh, leaders is a hugely difficult factor because it creates the phenomenon of we'll just wait you out. We'll just the unions or the or the other the 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 aspiring leaders will just wait out whatever your protocol is because it's not going to be followed through on. Yeah. So uh, what that really indicates then is that people, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, people in places like Baltimore, Portland, Philadelphia, Dallas, uh, the other uh, soft on crime cities need to know that strong leadership is required. Yeah, they, they, they need to know that. And back to the victims of our own success model is unfortunately we've been lulled into a sense of complacency because of how successful we've been in reducing crime since its heights that we think that these things don't matter and it has to get bad before we wake up and say, okay, you know, this is not a, this is not a solution. And that's kind of where the libertarian problem lies is that they're, they're, they're relying on the success of tough on crime to say, we don't need tough on crime. It's a, it's a, it's a great uh, logical or uh, tautology or whatnot that <laughs> we uh, we can uh, we can solve a problem because we already solved it, so therefore we don't need the solution anymore. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's. Uh, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it, it it's too black and white, right? I mean, it, it it's uh, when you are doing something right, why would you stop doing it? Yeah, and 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 in a broader sense, we're obviously I I focus mostly on, um, you know, urban uh, traditional crime. I would call it, um, you know, violent crime and, and and urban quality of life concerns. But but the, the same applies to rioting and 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 the unruly protest issues, is when there are no consequences and city after city has told the cops on at the time of the event arrest them or lock them up or push them back or whatever. And then they get, the cop gets hit with a bottle and says, fine, you know, bracelets on, you're going in the van. And then two days later, that, that SOB is back on the street throwing bottles again. Right. If you're a cop and you see that guy again, or you see him back at the station getting let right out, you, you're demoralized. Why are you going to stick your neck out? Right, and that, you see that in Portland. Actually, the, the cops are just uh, standing back. They're, they're starting to crack down now uh, on the riots because I, uh, they must have got polling numbers. That uh, well, in fact, uh, Ted Wheeler just had a poll released uh, this week showing that uh, two thirds of Portland disapproves of the job he's doing, and it's basically because of all this crime in the streets. So now, all of a sudden, Portland police is allowed to do its job, but. Um, that's causing controversy with the more liberal members of the city council, which is just a, a never-ending cycle, you know. So, uh, I, I think you're right, though. That's that's basically what happened in New York, right? Is that uh, they they realize it, it got really, really bad, and they had to vote for change. Yeah, I mean, we're 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 going to have a reckoning on some of these issues very soon, unfortunately because of one party control and i don't blame you know most of these offices are um most of these offices are uh uh effectively nonpartisan in reality like to say you're a democratic prosecutor is meaningless in most places but you have to be a democrat or a republican to run is 
because they're partisan, you see primaries determine who people elect. While the vast majority of a city is either unengaged in a primary process or not paying attention yet. And therefore, Kim Gardner, for example, and Kim Fox in Chicago uh, just won their primaries with a tiny fraction of the Chicago electorate voting for them. But there's going to be, you know, there's like a suicide candidate on the Republican side on both places. And nobody, unless it unless it gets New York City Giuliani bad uh, to allow Giuliani to win in 1993, is, is anyone going to do anything? And they're not going to vote for a Republican in Portland anytime soon. Yeah, no, that's that's clearly not the case. And we've actually been talking with several folks about doing a write-in uh, because uh, the primary, uh, Ted Wheeler uh, barely missed out on a, uh, a, a majority of the vote. It's a, so it goes to a runoff. Uh, he got 49 or 48 percent of the vote. And so the other candidate, I'm sure you've seen this in the news, uh, says that she is the Antifa candidate. So uh, as this summer has gotten so hot, a lot of people are just fed up with everything. And, and we're looking at trying to promote a write-in candidate because it's a unique time in history where something like that could actually be successful. Yeah, that's the uh, the lesser of two evils. When they're both evil, it's Trotsky versus Stalin. You're like, Stalin's terrible. <laughs> This Trotsky guy, he's real reasonable. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> um, I mean that. I mean that. And that. And then honestly, Ted Wheeler is going to end up probably winning, uh, not in a landslide, but win a sizable percentage of the vote because uh, people are like, "Oh crap, this lady's crazy." Yeah, he's the voice of sanity in this city. Yeah, and so when you've moved that, I mean that that's actually happening in New York too. Uh, without like a Bloomberg or a crisis, like a Giuliani level crisis of 93 is uh, de Blasio is getting primaried from the left by Scott Stringer, who by the way, isn't a left winger, but he, he pretends to play one on TV. Oh, that's um, funny. And, and, uh, and, and that's the same thing that's happening. And there's going to be some others, you know, randomly. So they split the vote eight ways to Sunday. So de Blasio might come through, but when you're sitting there going, Oh, de Blasio is the best we got. That's, that's how bad it's become. No, that guy's an out and out communist. It's it's but you know what he actually Debla I want I'm actually thinking about writing a piece about this because there's been a couple instances it hasn't been a big enough trend and it hasn't been significant things but I actually want to write a piece about um, being mugged by reality and all these liberal progressives like waking up in power and going oh my god and the the the, the most obvious example was in uh, 2008 Barack Obama campaign on closing Guantanamo. He's like, we're going to close it. This is inhumane, human rights. ACLU tells me so, blah, 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 blah. And then <laughs> he gets his first national security briefing after being president. He's like, well, we're going to wait and see. I'll notice how it goes. You know, it's been hard. I think at one point he said, it's been harder than we thought. And I'm like, I'm la and I'm, I'm laughing because Guantanamo is still open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's been eight years and you didn't close it. Like, like there are there are bad dudes in Guantanamo that you do not want to release to Qatar or Afghanistan or wherever, right. unless they come, unless they will cut their head off right away. Like you don't want them out. Um, well, and they've only been more radicalized by being in uh, prison for so long. Yeah, they'll, they'll, they're going to be real cuddly when they get out. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's what we're that's what we're we're dealing with is this mugged by reality phenomenon. So, De Blasio the Soros prosecutor in Boston. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but a, a homeless man 
committed a number of violent acts and including an armed robbery or some type of robbery and maybe even a sexual assault. And he got bail of 75 or $5,000 was the set bail for his crime. Wow. No, no, no. But it, it gets better. He was indigent because this is the whole point. In, in, in a lot of these states, they basically lock the bail to be uh, tied to their income or to some their resources and assets. So he has no assets, no, no resources. No one was going to bail him out. So what does it matter if it's $5,000 or $5 million? He's not doing anything. Then the Massachusetts Bail Fund, one of these other Soros-backed groups, comes in and says, oh, we'll post it. So Rachel Rollins, who's super lefty and, and, and you know, social justice, comes forward and goes, okay, it's $75,000 now. Like she literally went right back to court and stopped the, stopped the bail release because these, uh, these do-gooder social justice warriors were going to bail out a violent criminal who had tried to rape somebody. And she was like, no, no, he can't go. No, you can't buy him out for, for five grand. Sorry. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Um, it, it's, it's the ultimate example of liberal feel-good policies versus actual reality policies. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 they're slowly being and, – and de Blasio has done the same thing to a certain extent where de Blasio initially, you know, uh, sopped – to the um, to the protesters in New York, and then eventually it never stopped. Like he thought it was going to be a couple weeks or a week or two, and and then the violence would end, and he wouldn't be deploying, you know, a thousand cops to an intersection every few hours, and then it just never stopped. And he's like, okay, fine, start start busting heads. Like this is over. Right, and it, uh, again, even even Ted Wheeler had to finally crack down because you know it just couldn't, it wasn't tenable anymore. But we're still, I mean, we're, we had a riot last night. You know, this is 104 days in a row now. So, I mean, it, it's just never ending, and, and it's because of a lack of leadership. It, it, it's the the shocking absence of leadership on this issue uh, is uh, disconcerting. Um, I will give credit to Attorney General Barr, but he has he has limited resources and obviously authority. It's very dangerous for the federal government to do to overstep too much into local law enforcement. But uh, there needs to be pressure applied, not only by the feds, but by uh, other by state authorities where necessary. I mean, even your governor is 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 sick and tired of this. That that yeah, but she can- still hasn't deployed the National Guard. No, I, I understand that, but I mean, her, her, uh, her, the fact that she's such a progressive and is so, and is even giving lip service to this <laughs> is a, is a, is a st- statement. Um, I mean, you're not, you're not going to win them all. And, and yeah, they need to really come around. She obviously feels either personally conflicted or politically conflicted that if she really came out and, and cracked down, she thinks it may even get worse because uh, I don't know if it could get worse. Um, but, but it, I mean, one thing I always say to people though, is, you know, the Republic will endure the American people have the amazing ability as the Tocqueville, uh, famously wrote in democracy for America, the greatness of America is not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but in its ability to repair its own faults. And it is that willingness to look in ourselves and continue to aspire to our national values and say, we are good. We are not perfect. And we will strive to continue to be perfect, a more perfect union, et cetera. 
uh, that is what makes us different. And, you know, sometimes the pendulum's going to swing one way and sometimes it's going to swing the other, but eventually it comes back to center. Yeah, but you're now seeing more pressure and people more openly saying that the United States needs to be canceled, that, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter and Antifa are saying that this this needs to, uh, you know, and, and you've got... When you can have people like Ilhan Omar and uh, um, AOC and and uh, Rashida Tlaib uh, elected to Congress, that that's not a that's not just a pendulum sw- shift, though, don't you think? Uh, I mean, we've we've had people who are effectively communist in the Congress before uh, and didn't hide it very much, and were were actively aiding the Soviets as much as they could in the Congress. Teddy Kennedy. Yeah, I mean, Kennedy was the least of them compared to some of the other people who are secretly. Uh, back channeling to the contras and things like that. But what you're, what you're, what you're talking about is enemies within. Yes, of course we have enemies within what occurred this time. That's different. But the pendulum is swinging just the same is that the media gave radical voices who either in the media's defense were not seen as radical or not as radical as they really were, or uh, in media's things was the media was unaware of, what they were unleashing, they were given, they were given platforms to espouse this stuff and to attempt to normalize it. But this is the same thing. I'll use the example in the, in the nineties, we talked about politically correct or PC culture. And there was a huge amount of this diversity training and PC this and all that stuff. And the pendulum swung so far back that it became acceptable to say basically outright racist things by saying, Oh, I'm just not PC. And that's maybe too far. And that's my point, but people basically got so sick and tired of the overreach that they rejected even reasonableness or politeness altogether. Um, And I hope that doesn't happen this time, but I think that many of these individuals, what the black lives matter organization, not necessarily the phrase, the phrase is, somewhat meaningless, but the, but the, but the, uh, but the organization is really about has been slowly exposed and people are like, this is crazy. This isn't about police reform or even racial justice or whatever. This is about something that they want. They've always wanted. That's much bigger and scarier than what they're saying. And uh, you know, a few corporate diversity officers here and all that stuff, they're going to be bristled at. I mean, you could already argue that the same thing has happened with me too. Me too was a witch hunt from the beginning. And there were witches. I mean, Harvey Weinstein is a terrible person. There's a lot of these people, Matt Lauer seemed like a scum bag. There are other people who preyed on people and they deserve to be destroyed, but there was no fair hearings in me too. And once it became clear that some of these were faulty allegations the pendulum swung back. And now if you, if you put times up or me too on your Twitter hashtag, people think you're crazy. <laughs> Unless you do it ironically. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Sean Kennedy. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, uh, give a shout out to uh, the audience on uh, where, the, uh, where they can find all your work. You can go to mdpolicy.org. That's M as in Maryland, D as in David, policy.org, uh, and check out all my stuff. Uh, just type in Sean Kennedy into the search bar. All right, guys. Thank you so much, Jeff. Yeah, thank you. This has been a blast. Uh, let's do it again sometime. 
Thanks for checking out the Behind the Curtain podcast. I want to thank my buddy Brian Futch for providing me the theme song, I Am America, produced by Cass Anawadi. Join us again next time for another episode of Behind the Curtain with Jeff Reynolds. Amen.